Good morning. The scripture reading today is Matthew 3, 1 through 12. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me... I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We've we've been in Matthew for for several weeks now, and it, the storyline of the book of Matthew takes a definite turn here at, at chapter 3. Up until this point, we have been studying as Jesus was either very little or before Jesus was even born. That's been the whole story, and, uh, and some Old Testament uh, prophecies or passages that, that Matthew includes to prove his point. Matthew's main point in this book is that Jesus is the king. But here at chapter 3, Matthew fast-forwards about 30 years, and he's going to tell us three stories, three events that make up basically the, the preparation for Jesus' ministry. Today is the ministry, the message of John the Baptist, and then the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist next week, and then after that, the temptation of Jesus at the hands of Satan, and then... It'll be Jesus' ministry. Well, today, we meet John the Baptist, and and by studying him, Matthew's going to teach us something else about the kingdom and this king that he argues is Jesus. Um, When you were growing up, like before there was video for everything readily available, let me see if this rings any bells for you. Did you grow up listening to somebody on the radio it could be a, a singer uh, or you know, a DJ or somebody that, that you, you recognize their voice. Like when you heard it, you could instantly tell who that was. Now, if you're like me, did you, did you have a picture in your head of what that person looked like just from their voice? But then later you actually saw them in person and you're like, wait a minute. That's what they look like. They look nothing like I thought he would look like or she would look like. In a way, that's John the Baptist. Let me explain what I mean. 
the Jews were looking for what was called a forerunner to the Christ or a herald of the Messiah. Ancient kings had what was called, or what were called, heralds was one job. A herald is the guy who introduced the king wherever he went. Like we even do this for our presidents. Presidents don't just go into places, right? It's ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, right? That's like a herald. Uh, A forerunner was someone who went, was like the advance team that went before a king to make sure wherever he was going to travel was safe and the roads were in repair and all that stuff. Well, the Old Testament promised that the Messiah, this king that the Old Testament had promised over and over and over again, that king would have a herald, a forerunner. In fact, the Old Testament closes with predictions of this forerunner, this herald. The book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. One of the main things he promises is the forerunner is coming, the the herald. So Israel was expecting a herald, a forerunner. I just don't think they were expecting one to look like and to sound like and to have a message and a ministry like John the Baptist. Today we're going to see Matthew's account of the ministry of John the Baptist. And instead of going just verse by verse through this, I want to raise and answer three questions about John. Here's what we're going to do today. Uh, Just who was John the Baptist? That's first. And these will all be on the screen as we go through. Who was John the Baptist? What did he ask people to do? And why did he ask people to do what he asked them to do? So who was he? What did he ask people to do? And why did he ask them to do it? And then we'll see what that teaches us about the king and the kingdom for us today. That's where we're going. So we will start with the first question. Who was John the Baptist? I already alluded or or mentioned John's main biblical function, his main purpose, his God-given job, and that was to be the forerunner of the king, right? Kings, like I said, had forerunners, had heralds, and if Matthew's purpose in this book is to show us that Jesus is the king, it only makes sense that the first thing he talks about John the Baptist is his job as it pertains to the king. He gives us Isaiah, the prophet's prediction of the forerunner. In verse 3, for he is, that's John. Matthew says, John is the one about whom Isaiah the prophet had spoken. The voice of one shouting in the wilderness or crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. That's what a, a forerunner might say. But what's really interesting about John, and to really understand his ministry and his message, you have to understand where the road was that he made straight. Like literally where it was and where it wasn't. When Isaiah wrote that prediction, Isaiah was a prophet who lived hundreds of years before Matthew and before John the Baptist. And and when Isaiah wrote that, he was writing to Jews who were going to be in captivity. And Isaiah writes his book. It's a big book. But a lot of his book is, hey, things are going to go bad for you, Judah. Jerusalem's going to be trashed. You're all going to be either killed or carried away into captivity. But don't worry, Messiah is coming. God's plans aren't canceled. 
And he predicts the forerunner. There's going to be somebody who cries out in the wilderness, let's make this road straight for the Lord. Here's what's interesting about that. Those people who were in Babylon and were reading Isaiah's prediction, what they thought this person would do was make a road straight for them to go home to Jerusalem. And that happened. But Matthew says, John the Baptist is the one who's really making this road straight. And John the Baptist didn't make a road for people to go into Jerusalem. John, the, the path to John the Baptist, who would point to the King Jesus, was outside of Jerusalem. He was out in the wilderness. Your Bible might call it the desert, which just means a place where nobody lives. He was out in the tulies, out in the sticks. More on that in a minute. But he didn't prepare a way that led to Jerusalem. He prepared a way that led away from Jerusalem. And that's going to be important as we move forward this morning. Another thing about who John the Baptist was, John was very technically speaking what anyone would consider a strange dude. A weird guy with a strangely popular ministry. Uh, We're told... In verse 4, that John wore weird clothes, verses 3 and 4. He wore weird clothes. He ate weird food. He wore a robe made out of camel's hair. (laughs) I get itchy just thinking about that. And he had a leather belt around that, and he ate grasshoppers and wild honey. And that's, that's John. That tells us a couple things about John. First, he didn't just preach out in the wilderness. He lived there. He was like a mountain man without the mountains. Uh, it tells us, you know, that he lived what he, off what he could find, and he wore clothes that would hold up out there. It also tells us he looked like a, another Old Testament prophet, a guy named Elijah. Um, more on this later in the book. Malachi said the Messiah won't come until Elijah the prophet shows back up. Later on, Jesus will say, if you'll accept it, John the Baptist is, is Elijah the prophet. But he looks like Elijah. Eli- it's, it's close to a, to a description of Elijah in the book of 1 Kings. But this strange-looking, bug-eaten, homeless dude had a really popular ministry. If you read all of the Gospels, and John the Baptist is in all the Gospels, the gospel writers use hyperbole, uh, which is uh, exaggeration to prove a point. They make it sound like, like every single person came out and got baptized by, by John. They say things like, all Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions out by the Jordan River, they all came. Uh, and that's probably not literally true, but we say this all the time, Right? If, uh, if there's something that goes on in town and, it, and, you know, you might say everybody was at the fair last night, right? So it's incredibly popular um, to way out in the wilderness, a strange dude, but just incredibly popular in terms of, of just sheer numbers of people who came. By the way, so big that uh, you don't even have to just go to the Bible to read about John the Baptist. There's a, there's a Jewish historian named uh, uh, Josephus. Forgot his name there for a minute. He hated Christianity, but he mentions John the Baptist. So he, he made the history books outside 
of the Gospels due to the popularity of his ministry. All right, next thing I want you to know about who John was. I call John a different kind of priest. And notice that priest is in quotes on the screen. Here's why I call John a different kind of priest. From the book of Luke, we know that John was born into a priestly family. His dad was a priest. His mom was from the the family of priests. And so that put him in line to be a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. Temple priests could only come from one family line, and John was in it. His dad was a priest. This, This set him up that he could have lived in Jerusalem, wore the priestly outfit, and encouraged people to come to the temple and do the temple thing. But John rejected that. He was a, a man of God. He was indwelt you know, with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb, we're told in Luke. But he rejects the temple and actually invites people to leave Jerusalem and come out to a different kind of ministry. He's like a different kind of priest. And then there's one last thing I want to... I need to tell you about, about who John was. John was a great man. Jesus is going to say later in this book, nobody is ever born who was greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty high praise, right? He's a great man with a great ministry. And he is far inferior to the one he pointed people toward. In verse 11, John said, the the one who's coming after me is so great I couldn't be his lowest slave. Like, I, I, I wouldn't be fit to carry his sandals, which is what the lowest servant, house servant, would have to do. That only makes sense. No matter how good the herald is, the forerunner is as his job, he's going to be inferior to the king he announces, right? Okay, that's a quick look at who John was. I want to look a little more closely at what John asked people to do. What did John the Baptist ask people to do? Simply put, John asked people to do two main things. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. But I feel like I need to help you understand what that meant, especially to his audience in that day. First, what did it mean to repent? Just this word, not in the Bible, just like out in ancient Greek culture. If you use this word, metanoeo is the, is the Greek word. If you use that word just out in the streets, what that meant is change your mind. That's what that word meant. If you change your mind about where you want to do your banking, you repent of that. Okay? It's a very churchy word for us. It was a very regular word then. Okay? It means to change your mind now. In the New Testament, it gets a fuller meaning than merely to change your mind. But whatever else it means, you can't do it if you don't first change your mind. It starts, repentance starts in here and in here. Change of mind and change of heart. Now in the New Testament, and really just logically in life itself, repentance never stays internal. If I've really changed my mind about something, my behavior will wind up following it. Here's what I mean by that. I'll take my same example of banking. If I say that I've changed my mind about where I bank, 
but I never take any money out of my current bank and never open an account in another bank. Have I really changed my mind about where I bank? Not really. I might understand there's some problems where I bank. And I, if some of you work at a bank here or my bank, right? Uh, uh, this sermon's brought to you by Pinnacle Bank. No, the, uh, I'm not, uh, it's just an example. They don't read anything into this. Um, but that's why I say this is a good definition of biblical repentance, I think, that I have written on the screen here. Repentance is a change of mind that results in changed behavior. It's a change of mind that, that results in changed behavior. And when I say that, that John was asking people to repent, that's what John was talking about. That's why in verse 8 he asks some people, and we'll talk about the conversation in a second, but he asks people, what is the, what is the fruit that you, had, that you bear in keeping with repentance? Or he tells them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If you've really changed your mind about what I want you to change your mind about, I should be able to tell by what happens in your life. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So by asking people to repent, John is asking people to change their mind about some things in a way that will result in some differences, some changes in their life or their behavior. But what did John ask people to repent of? More than one thing. John did ask people to repent of their sin. And if I asked you, those of you, those of us who grew up in church, if I say, what did John want people to repent of? You all would have said, repent of sin. And that's part of it. I don't even think it's the main part, though. But John did ask people to repent of sin. We can tell because at one point, I forget the verse, and I don't want to stare through my notes, but people, before they're baptized, they confess their sins before they're baptized. They repent of sin. What does that mean? that I repent of sins. It can mean more than one thing. One person might repent of sin this way. I may not have even known sin was a problem. I may need to change my mind about that. Another person might, well, sure, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm a sinner. But I'm probably, okay, I'm better than that guy. I'm better than that guy. I need to repent, change my mind about the size of my sin problem. That takes repentance. And then there's a kind of repentance from sin where I recognize a thing I do or don't do, that that is wrong, and I need to turn from that. I need to change that. That's also repentance of sin. And I think John was asking people to do all three of those things, but I don't think that was the main repentance John was after. And I want to explain myself in thinking that. The main thing John wanted people to repent of was their righteousness or their religion. John wanted Jews, which was his, his ministry was almost entirely to first century Jews. He wanted them to change their mind about what made them okay with God if they were okay with God. Repent of their righteousness, what made them not guilty with God or cool with God. And for them, that was repenting of their religion. 
That's why I've made such a big deal about where John was doing this ministering. John didn't ask people or encourage people, you need to go to the temple and make a sacrifice because you're a sinner. He encouraged people to leave Jerusalem, come out there in the sticks with him where there was nothing between you and God but your sin. Nothing to hide behind. You're not going to make a sacrifice and think, well, because I've done this, God will be okay with me. You're not going to give an offering because I've done that, God will be okay with me. John is encouraging people to leave the temple in Jerusalem. Now listen, he's not telling people, you know what? In the Old Testament, that Levitical system that God dreamed up, he was so wrong about that. God didn't know what he was doing. That wasn't his message at all. What's John out there doing? He's pointing people to one who's coming after him. That all that stuff in the temple pointed to. John is saying, we'll see in a minute, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. All that stuff that used to happen in the temple, people used to have to go and kill animals and do sacrifices and do all these ceremonies. All that stuff pointed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and He's about to come on the scene. And as soon as Jesus shows up, the Levitical system is obsolete. It's over. Because every one of those sacrifices points to the person of Jesus Christ. And John is saying, it's time to leave the temple and come out here and deal with your sins personally. It's not going to do you a bit of good anymore to kill a goat and think you're okay with God. Because the, king is, the kingdom is at hand when the king shows up. And when, and when John had someone who was willing to change their mind about what made them okay with God, he had them get baptized. That was a way to identify with John's message. I, I want, this would have been so insulting to the people who worked at the temple. As David read through that passage, did you notice there were, a, there were a couple of groups of people, Pharisees and Sadducees, I'll tell you who they are later in the book. But they come out to John to his baptism. They at least pretend to agree, and John blasts them. Did you notice that? He just lets them have it. Because John knows they're not okay with what he's doing. Because there were people who got baptized in Judaism, in the Jewish religion. You know who they were? Pagans, Gentiles. Pagan Gentiles, when they decided, I'm going to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the only God, okay, a filthy pagan like me would get baptized into Judaism. You know what John's doing? He's baptizing people out of Judaism. He's having them identify with something different. Jesus later is going to say that his ministry is like, it doesn't fit in Judaism. It's like putting new wine in an old wineskin. It doesn't work. Not the same thing. It's a new game. And when John, John baptizing people, and he's having them confess their sins 
out there in the sticks in the Jordan River. You know how confession of sins worked in Israel, in ancient Israel? You would take a bull or a goat and you would drag it up the hill into the temple. You would put your hand on the head of that animal. You would confess all your sins. Then you'd slit the throat of that thing and watch it bleed out as a picture of what your sin costs. My sin costs blood. And that's how sin was atoned for. John is having people stand out in a river and confess their sins without a sacrifice. You know why? Because he's pointing people toward the one he would call in the book of John, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is asking people to repent of what they thought made them okay with God. Change their mind about what it takes to be okay with God and be baptized as the first like bit of fruit in keeping with that repentance. That's what John was asking people to do. Now, you just have to hear this before I go on. If you're kind of dozing off, if, I, if I'm getting kind of long, I just snap out of it for a second and listen to this. Before we go on, I want you to know John's ministry is not enough to save anybody. John is only pointing people toward the one who can save people. Here's why that's important. See if you've ever done something like this. Maybe you weren't standing in the Jordan River. But see if you, have you ever gotten to the point where you are confronted with your sin, you're so disgusted with your sin, and you decide, I am not going to do this anymore. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn. I'm going to be better so that God doesn't have to be disappointed in me anymore. How many of you have been there? I, I, that's okay. Don't, it's not wrong to have a conversation with yourself like that. But having conversations with yourself like that never saved anybody. John's baptism is not enough. John's ministry is not enough. We can see that in the book of Acts, where the apostles find some people that still only follow John. They don't know about the one John pointed to, Jesus, and they're not saved. They're sorry for their sin. They vow to do better. And they're not a part of the kingdom. All right. So that's what John, that's who he is, what he asks people to do, repent of their sin, repent of their righteousness, and be baptized to prove they've, to show that they have repented. And now why did John ask people to do those things, to repent and be baptized? Well, John's first words in the book of Matthew sum up his message. He says, repent because the kingdom of heaven, for, which means because. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which means it's here, it's near, it's come near. I'm close to the kingdom. And repentance has something to do with getting in the kingdom. Um, all right, I'm going to punt what I was about to say. The rest of this, this book, Matthew, is about who the king is and what his kingdom is. We'll talk about all the kingdom is throughout the rest of this book. It's going to take us like a year and a half. For now, just know that John wants people to repent. And there's a sense of urgency for two reasons. One, 
because the time is short. Your chance to decide whether or not you're going to be in the kingdom is close. You're close to it. It's short. You never know. And second, and John says this in multiple ways in this passage, the kingdom that Jesus will bring brings a terrible judgment with it. John says this over and over and over in this passage. In verse 7, he says, the axe is already laid at the base of the trees. He says, uh, who warned you guys to leave uh, the judgment, to flee from the judgment? Um, in verses 11 and 12, I put those on the screen because I want to camp on them for a second. John said, repent, the kingdom is near. Change your mind about what makes you okay with God. Here's why. And don't get it twisted. You need somebody else, not me. He says, I baptize you with water when you change your mind about what you used to do to be okay with God. I baptize you with water. But there's someone coming after me who's mightier than I am, which means you need him. If you need me, you really need him. Like I'm not even fit to carry his shoes. And he's going to baptize you with two things, the Holy Spirit and fire. And then to explain what he means by a baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire, John tells this little story talking about Jesus. It's his winnowing fork, his hay fork, right? Finally, something we can understand around here, right? His hay fork is in his hand and he's going to clear out his threshing floor. He's going to gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn up in unquenchable fire. Here's, here's how harvest worked. Uh, wheat, this is wheat or barley. Uh, the shocks of wheat, you know, would come in and they would take the fork and in the wind they'd throw the grain, the, the hay in the air and the wind will blow the chaff away and the straw away and the heavier grain falls down. And that's, that was a combine, right? That was a threshing machine back in the day. Right? And why do you do that? To separate what you want from what you don't want. And John says, when Jesus comes, he will be the, the great separator. He's the threshing machine on high. Jesus is the great separator of people. I know in some sense Jesus is a great unifier of people too because all the people who come to faith in Jesus and accept his salvation become a part, get baptized into the Holy Spirit and become part of the church of Jesus Christ which is the most diverse unit of people the world has ever seen. Bar none. Great unifier. But, but everybody who's not in the kingdom is outside the kingdom, and that is a very stark, dividing line. And that's what John is saying. I'm convinced what John is saying here is that Jesus Christ is going to baptize every single person. Jesus Christ is going to baptize everybody. Just some people he will baptize, which is just a word that means dip or dunk, immerse. Some he will baptize into the Holy Spirit. And they'll look perfect to God. And they gain eternal life. 
and other people get baptized into a judgment that's too terrible to even think about. Because Jesus is the great divider. And I know that sounds exclusive and offensive. It's why not too long ago, one of our United States senators asking a, uh, a nominee for a government position about his faith, the senator said, so you, are you telling me that you believe that anybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, that they're condemned? You believe that? And the guy had to say, yes, that's what the Bible teaches, and I'm a Christian, and that's what... And the senator said, then we don't want people like you in the government because that's hateful, and that's terrible. We shouldn't be shocked by that. Jesus is the great separator of people. And the guy who heralded Jesus' arrival on the scene, that was his message. Repent, change your mind about what makes you okay with God because your chance is short and because the king brings judgment with him. And John knew outside of accepting the king for who he is, there's no other way into the kingdom. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. John knew that. That's why he was so urgent. That's why he told the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they walk out from the temple and come down to meet John, what are you snakes doing here? He calls them snakes, which is not very nice. You know what he means by that? Why is a snake dangerous to its prey? Because the prey doesn't know that there's any danger there. It just seems like a nice walk in the park. And all of a sudden, snake, too late. Right? These people look okay. They look good. They're moral. They know the Old Testament. He says they're dangerous. You know why? Because they're not going to encourage people to leave the temple and accept Jesus as the king. John knows this. He says, this is dripping with sarcasm. I love John the Baptist. He says, uh, who warned you to flee the judgment that's coming? Shouldn't you guys be there at ground, back there at ground zero, waiting to get what's coming to you? You know, by, within about 40 years of this, the Romans just destroy the temple in Jerusalem. I think it's what John is saying. Who warned you to leave the temple? And he says, if you have really changed your mind, if you really agree with my ministry, where is the fruit? Are you leaving the temple? Or are you going to go back and give sacrifices again tomorrow? He knows they are. He says, and I don't want to hear that you're from the right family to be okay with God. We're good people. We're God's people. God promised Abraham he would always have descendants. John says, God doesn't need you to keep his promises. If he, if, he really, if he needed to, if there were no more believing Jews on earth, he could rise some up from those rocks the way he made Adam out of the dust of the earth. All right, I could talk about John the Baptist all day because I really like him. But I want to talk about you. Enough about me, let's talk about you. John had a very specific message for a very short period of time for a very specific audience. 
But why does Matthew include it to tell us? And Mark and Luke and John as well. Well, here's why. This is what I think the Lord would have you and I consider this morning, take home with us this morning about John the Baptist's message. First, I'll just repeat John's words. By the way, this will be Jesus' words not too long from now. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What do I hope you repent of? Your sin and your righteousness. Your sin and your righteousness. Just what John said. More than anything, what I, what I hope you repent of is, is any idea, anything that you point to that makes you believe that when you stand before God, you will be okay. I want you to repent of anything that makes you feel like I will be okay before God unless that thing you point to is the cross of Jesus Christ, is the Son of God, shed bloodshed for us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, of the world. John's mission was to point people to Jesus because there is salvation in no one else. Again, his ministry was not enough. Just because you've been really sorry for how you've lived and vowed to never do it again, that's not enough. Have you believed that Jesus bore my sins on that cross? When he hung there, it was my sin that put him there. And he died in my place because of my sin, out of love for me. If there's anything else you believe that you're hoping will make you okay with God, I want to ask you to repent of that, which means change your mind first. The second thing I want you to take home from from the ministry of John the Baptist is I just want you to know it is way better to be a repentant sinner than it is to be a religious person. I hope you go out of here hoping to be a repentant sinner rather than a religious person. Here's John's ministry. Hey, religious guys coming from the religious place, I got no use for you. But if there's anybody here who knows they're a sinner and wants to change their mind about what they think makes them okay with God, I'm all about that. Here's why it's better to be a repentant sinner than a religious person. Here's what religion says. I don't care which religion it is. They all say this. Religion says, here's a list of things God or or whatever says I can't do. Here's a list of things that same God says I should do. My standing before God is determined on how well I avoid these things and do these things. That's religion. If I'm good enough at avoiding this, quitting this, turning from that, I'll never do this again, and I start doing this stuff, religious stuff, good stuff, kind stuff, if I do enough of this and avoid enough of this, then when I see God, he'll say, yeah, you are better, you're good enough. Come on in. All right? That's religion. And the most religious people in the Gospels are the people that Jesus had the least amount of patience with. He was about a million times fonder. Fonder? More fond? 
Somebody help me out there. Let's go with fonder. He was about a million times fonder of prostitutes, tax collectors, and lepers who are willing to say, I'll change my mind. I'll, I'll change my mind. I'll repent of my sin. I'll accept you as king. He was a million times fonder of somebody like that than the people who pointed to, look at the stuff I don't do and the stuff I do. That's why I'm okay with God. If there's a part of you that still thinks you can make God love you more by not doing this stuff and and doing more of this stuff, and God's level of love for you is based on how you do in religious things, You need to repent of that. Here's why. God's only satisfaction for people who will be saved is based on what Jesus did on their behalf. The Bible says that when you place your faith in Christ, His righteousness gets put on your account. That's what the book of Romans is all about. His righteousness gets put on my account. How righteous is Jesus? He's God. He's perfect. Right? He did nothing he shouldn't have done. He did everything he should have done. Do you really think your little JV level of righteousness can make God love you more than that? I mean, honestly, God is either perfectly satisfied with you in Christ or you're not even close. And a great thing about being a a repentant sinner instead of a religious person is that I can finally be honest about my sin. If I'm a religious person, I have to deceive you into thinking I'm pretty good at this stuff. Because I accept people based on religious standards. And I want you to accept me. And I have to deceive myself into how I'm doing on these things. Because that's how I score myself and I think it's how God scores me. But when I'm a repentant sinner and I know God's completely satisfied with me based on the cross of Christ, now I can be honest with every single sin. And I can confess and repent and confess and repent and confess and repent all the time knowing God loved me when I was at my worst. He died for me when I was at my worst. Worst. His love has not waned in the meantime. So be a repentant sinner more than a religious person. And now that being said, biblical repentance always comes with behavioral evidence. Biblical repentance always comes with behavioral evidence. That's why John said, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Have you repented? What's changed? What's different? Now be careful. Number three, notice the the second person pronoun use. uh, How do I do this in a less nerdy fashion? This This is for you to examine you and your fruit of your repentance 
not for you to examine someone else's fruit as proof of their repentance. Some, I heard a pastor one time say it this way, don't walk through life being a fruit inspector. You are not called to be the fruit inspector. And here's how that works. Well, that person says they're a Christian, but I don't believe it. You know why? Let me give you the list of the sins they still sin. That's religious stuff. I'll get out the scorecard. How you doing on the stuff you shouldn't do, the stuff you should do. Oh, sorry, you fail. I doubt your salvation because I'm the fruit inspector. Here's how you have to be careful with that. Let me give you uh, an easy example here. Let's say there's somebody who, or an obvious example. Let's say there's somebody who's a, a pathological liar. You know what I mean by that? They just lie when they don't even have don't even need to lie. It doesn't benefit them anymore. It's just their default reaction is just to lie. And let's say the Lord gets a hold of their heart and they decide, I think I need to repent of this. And they go before the Lord, they confess that to the Lord and they they start to turn from their sin. If they begin to bear fruit, here's, here's why fruit's such a great example. How many of you have ever like, if you had an apple tree, been around an apple tree. And here's the way it works. You, you see little blossoms and then you go inside and go to bed one night and you come out the next morning and there's ripe fruit ready to pick and eat, right? No, it's slow. It takes time. All right, so let's, our pathological liar, they've repented. You know what their fruit might be? Their fruit might be first, for the first time in my life, I don't want to lie. That, that's evidence of Repentance. Just a desire to not do it. And then maybe their fruit is instead of lying three quarters of the time, now they only lie two thirds of the time. And three quarters is bigger than two thirds because math. Um, the, but to you, you would still feel like, I can't believe anything this person says. I can't trust a thing they say. They always lie. There's no way they repented. There's no... But there's fruit there. I heard a story of a pastor. I'd never do this. But I heard a pastor talk about, he had uh, in the evening, the, like Saturday evening service was for the rough crowd. And uh, the, the guy in the band back here that looked like John the Baptist, you know, he's probably eating grasshoppers and honey back there between songs. Uh, and a, a woman came to this pastor. pastor, I came to this evening service and I was late and I came through the alley in the back and the bass player was out smoking in the alley. And she was appalled and wanted him probably stoned to death or something. Um, and you know what the pastor said? What was he smoking? And she said, well, a cigarette. And the pastor said, praise God, spiritual growth. <laughs> now, maybe we wouldn't go there. But that but that person might be growing like crazy. If you are a repentant sinner, inspect your own fruit, right? And encourage the growth of someone else's. All right, that's John's message for us. Uh, repent. The kingdom is here. I don't, you, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. If you have not made your peace with your God by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, I would urge you to repent because he is the king and you are nearer the kingdom than you may imagine. Then, live your life as a repentant sinner more than a religious person. 
Understanding, though, that biblical repentance will work its way out in behavioral change. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Father of the King, our Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for the ministry of John, someone who is bold enough to take a stand and say the time for religious observance is over because the king is here. And God, I thank you for the Levitical system and all of those sacrifices and the tabernacle and the lambs that were slain and the bulls who were bled out and the, and the garments of the priests and all of those beautiful and terrible ceremonies that point to Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that there's someone here who has never come to you through Jesus Christ. I pray you would call them to yourself right now. And and if you want to repent right now, if you're sitting there in your chair this morning and, and you want to repent of whatever it is that you have believed would make you okay with God, it's a simple thing. All you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, I know you are my Savior. I know I am a sinner. I need your record of goodness. And I believe you died on the cross to bear my judgment. And if you believe that, you've repented in a biblical way. Now bear fruit in keeping with repentance. God, I thank you that our standing before you is not determined by our religious records, but by our faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's in his wonderful name we pray.